In the first episode of The Dark Age of London, Canada's serial killer capital, we talked about the Tissue Slayer and why London, at the time, was such a hotspot for serial killers. In this episode, we continue the series by examining one of London's lesser-known serial killers, Gerald Thomas Archer, also known as the Chambermaid Slayer. The 1960s were coming to an end, the 70s just getting started. London was still reeling from the previous murders, and there was still some panic in the community. But what the community was about to realize was that the killings were going to continue, and not just in London. The Chambermaid Slayer was active in two cities, London and Chatham. This is part two of the Dark Age of London, Canada's serial killer capital. Gerald Thomas Archer was born in Depression-era London, Ontario, 1932. And like many at the time, he was a husband and a father. But he was more than that. In fact, he was one of the most gruesome killers London has ever seen. By 1950, he had a criminal record for offenses which included robbery, breaking and entering, and more. But over time, the severity of his crimes escalated. Between January of 1969 and January of 1971, he robbed, sexually assaulted, and murdered three women. All of his victims shared two things. They were women, and they were employees of local hotels. It was the targeting of hotel workers that earned Archer the nickname, the Chambermaid Slayer. Professor Michael Arnfield says Archer is one of the most mysterious serial killers in Canadian history. So the Chambermaid Slayer, this is a, a very lesser known uh, serial killer in Canadian history and, and even uh, among the London cases. So Gerald Thomas Archer, very little is known about him. There's no surviving photographs of him. Uh, and I mean, he has a very peculiar modus operandi and what we call victimology. So how he goes about acquiring victims and what his victims have in common. What his victims had in common were they were all housekeeping attendants at low rent hotels and motels. Well, hotels by, I mean, again, hotels by the, the standard of the day could just be a couple of rooms above a tavern, right? So, I mean, some of those buildings are still around. Uh, so like 19th century style hotels. Um, that sort of rented by the, the day or by the hour even. So he would acquire the, these women often while drinking in the, in the taverns uh, in the same building. Uh, they worked there. He would, he would get them back to um, his room in most cases. And um, I mean, the crimes weren't particularly, I don't want to say sophisticated, but I mean, he's, he's what we call a disorganized offender with the exception being that he's able to lure victims into his private space where he can control the scene, whereas most disorganized offenders actually sort of uh, offend in public and on foot and opportunistically. So he, he's, a, he's, he's noteworthy in that respect and that he's a hybrid of, of different, different typologies of killers and remains, other than among criminologists, I don't know, essentially unknown. He was a disorganized killer whose crimes were known for being spontaneous and excessive with no signs of premeditation. His attacks were random. His victims, women who unfortunately were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The first of his known victims was a woman named Jane Woolley. Jane Woolley was a 62-year-old chambermaid at the London House Hotel on Dundas Street. On January 31st, 1969, she was beaten and stabbed to death in her York Street apartment. Her body was discovered by a friend three days later. The chambermaid slayer left nothing behind other than a few cigarette butts on the table. Money was stolen from Woolley's purse and most of her clothing had been removed. This led police to believe this was a case of attempted rape. 
But Chambermaid Slayer did not stop after the brutal killing of Jane Woolley. In fact, he was just getting started. He continued his murder spree for another two years. The second woman who had the unfortunate fate of crossing paths with Archer was 57-year-old Edith Otier. She was living by herself in Merlin, Ontario. She had a job working as a chambermaid at the William Pitt Hotel in Chatham. And on September 4, 1970, she too had the misfortune of coming across the chambermaid slayer. Otier's body was discovered the next day by her neighbor. She had been beaten and stabbed to death in her William Street home. And just like Jane Woolley, money had been stolen from her purse and she was sexually assaulted. While the M.O. and signature of the two cases were clearly the same, the murders took place in two separate cities, London and Chatham. When these crimes happened, information sharing between police services was almost non-existent, completely different from what we have today. Today, the crimes would be clearly linked, whereas in 1969, it's likely that they didn't know what kind of monster they were dealing with. The chambermaid slayer's last murder and the one that would be his undoing took place once more in Chatham, under the same police jurisdiction. It was on January 23, 1971, when Reginald Tomlinson walked into his apartment building on Adelaide Street South in Chatham, as he had done many times before. But this time, he bumped into someone he didn't know. What he couldn't have known at the time was that he bumped into the man who made him a widower. Moments after he entered the apartment building, Tomlinson entered his apartment and made the ghastly discovery of the body of his wife. 57-year-old Belva Russell had been beaten to death. The crime scene was again similar to the previous two cases. The chambermaid slayer was then arrested and charged with the non-capital murder of Mrs. Russell. The arrest and conviction almost certainly wouldn't have happened if not for the fact that Tomlinson was able to identify in a lineup the man he had bumped into in the hallway, the man who had killed his wife. At this point, this was the only murder Archer was linked to. And while that might have been disappointing for the police at the time, a dangerous killer was off the streets but they still had two murders that had not been solved. After serving his time in prison, Archer was paroled in 1985. He lived out the final 10 years of his life before dying of a heart attack in 1995. After his death, his estranged wife and daughter came forward and told the police that Archer had once confessed to them he had killed Edith Otier. It was a drunken slip-up on his part, but it proved to be crucial in closing Edith Otier's murder case. After that, there was one more connection to be made. In February 2000, the police exhumed Archer's remains and were able to match his DNA to the DNA that was extracted from cigarette butts found near the body of his first victim, Jane Woolley. These are all solvable because the crime scene work for the time especially was so good. These crimes are all solvable now because uh, someone had the foresight to, to preserve all this stuff. and. I mean, a, a single cigarette butt at, at a scene is, is, is remarkable. So to be clear, he, he, was, he was matched posthumously um, and by DNA. The media played a critical role in keeping citizens safe by eliciting public insight and tips for police to help with the investigation. The media's role in investigations was a double-edged sword, however. That's because being aware of other serial killers in the area and the details of their crimes also helped them conceal themselves. As mentioned in the first episode, a slip-up by the media in releasing a holdback detail in the Tissue Slayer case resulted in a copycat killer. In other cases, serial killers often keep their clippings of their crimes and find pleasure in hearing about what they've done as well as the crimes of other killers. It's an odd validation for their crimes as well as a potential enabler to commit the crimes they're already fantasizing about. And we know that organized serial offenders 
are very media savvy. They follow their own crimes and similar crimes in, in, in the press. So, I mean, in a, in a city the size of London, and given, again, the, the organization of some of these offenders and some overlap in terms of MO and in terms of victimology, they're, they're, it would be beyond the pale for them to, to not be following uh, these other crimes and to draw inspiration from them, likely. Historically, tips from the public have often helped with solving cases that have originally gone cold. However, police still have to sort through the hundreds of tips that they get to pick out what's relevant for their case. Sometimes these tips can be misleading, not timely, or just not specific enough. The reality of when you solicit tips from the public or you, you, you bring information forward to the public, a description of a car, a composite sketch, uh, you can expect uh, you know, a, to be deluged with, with tips. Many of them well-intentioned, some of them just crank calls. I get emails through my website probably at least one a week still, I would say, where someone wants to share a story about a suspicious vehicle or someone who approached them in, you know, 1965, 1978, you name it. And they, they still want to help. And they've thought about it. They never reported it at the time, but it's haunted them. It's stuck with them. And, you know, this was going on. More people had these experiences than you would imagine. And uh Many of them, it seems, didn't report them, and I'm not sure why. If, if I mean, there, there just wasn't, I think, the open dialogue between the, the public and the, the police the way there is now. I mean, certainly there's no web presence where you could, there's no crime stoppers, there's no guarantee of real anonymity. And in fact, we see uh, the really disturbing sort of side story in, in Murder City is, is a witness to, uh, or a potential witness to uh, the murder of Jacqueline English, who sees her speaking with a suspicious man at the diner that she worked at, is then terrorized um, by some mysterious force for, and then eventually she and her family are killed in a suspicious fire. So, I mean, that would have been a deterrent to, I think, a lot of people coming forward as well. With the media and police working hand in hand to create awareness of the potential danger the public was in, naturally, it also created a lot of anxiety and unrest. People um, kept an eye on their children. People varied their routines. Uh, and I mean, like I said, the creation of block parent, you, you, there's, there's no greater statement, I think, about the awareness people had that they were living in danger than creating that program. And, you know, it, it went through very, it evolved through various things over the years as it got picked up by different cities. Uh, but it, it came from, a, a, like I said, a, a place where people were, were genuinely afraid. If this was happening today, how would you react? With that many active killers per capita, would there be a state of emergency? Well, you can imagine if, if this happened today, I and mean, there was a W5 episode on, on the book and these crimes, I mean, people would be beating down the door. I mean, the, the, if you look at 1968, 1969 alone, and considering the size of the city, uh, the attacks on women and children and disappearances, I mean, uh, I think you would see uh, what we now call direct action. I mean, people will be marching on police headquarters, marching on city hall. There will be all kinds of petitions one way or another. There will be all kinds of talking heads on TV, a massive digital presence. Um, and it's it, it really, and, and that's sort of the subtext of, of my book is that there's people who've lived in London their whole lives who don't remember this happening. So while the media was reporting on it, it's almost like it was taboo to even talk about it. 
So you could live privately in fear and, and be vigilant, but um, you know you daren't talk about this. And I'm not sure why, other than, um, well, I'm not sure why. And 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 that, quite frankly, is, is another part of the tragedy. It's interesting to think about how the police, the media, and the public would react to these murders today. With so many media outlets sharing the news, everyone and anyone can hear about the murders, discussing and deciphering these cases together online. But back then, everything was relayed through one mainstream newspaper, one that people read every single day. They had a duty to lay out everything as factually and fairly as they could, regardless of the panic it would cause. Because the community was far less connected than it is now, that panic was slow to spread. But once it did, there was no taking it back, especially since the killings were nowhere near finished. In the next episode of Serial Killer Capital, we examine one of the strangest killers yet, a killer who would scale 15 stories to commit his crimes. But what he did after the crimes is even stranger. Completing our trilogy is The Case of the Bedroom Strangler. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written by Haley Chang, Patrick Magermans, and Craig Needles. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.